0: Uh, your your Bible or um, a phone or some device. You'll be looking at the scriptures with us. We're gonna be in Second Samuel chapter six. Second um, Samuel chapter six. We've been working our way through First and Second Samuel now for the last several months. And and really the the overarching story um, of of First and Second Samuel is the rise of the monarchy. That a king um, is going to be put in place over the nation of Israel. That to some degree, the the nation of Israel has has rejected God as their king, um, demanding a king that would look like the nations, rather than recognizing that they have a a king in God, right? Who is providing for them, who is going before them in battle, who is caring for them, that they wanted to look like the nations. And so um, Samuel told them, listen, a king is going to be an actual judgment upon you, because you're going to get a king like the nations, and he's going to um, hold you down. And he's going to take your stuff, and he's going to take your sons and daughters, and it's going to be difficult. And that's the type of king that they got in Saul. And in the last few weeks, we've seen now King David, um, has, as of last week, has finally taken the throne. He's been recognized as the nation. Um, he is a man after God's heart. Um, he's been anointed by God. And it's, it's been clear um, in his slow rise to the throne that's taking much longer than he would have ever anticipated, years um, that he is not a perfect man, but that he is um seeking to to honor and obey the lord far more than saul ever did that he he's quick to turn and to inquire of the lord um and that he has got a life that is is mostly a life that is pointed towards obedience um although he is like we said far from perfect and and so ultimately, as we look at scripture as we look at these stories that are some three thousand years removed we have to be reminded that, that Scripture is ultimately telling one story. It's telling the story of God's um, redemption of His people, right? From creation to His return, um, and then into eternity. And we, we have Scriptures made up of many stories that are ultimately telling one story arc um, of how God is leaving symbols and, and, and things like the sacrificial system in place so that when Jesus steps on the scene, that He is recognized as the one sent by God to to take us back to the Father. And so we're going to pick up in chapter 6, verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him at at Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahiah, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahiah went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. So we're going to stop just briefly. We just kind of have this celebratory scene, right? It's the the people... Um, Jerusalem has been made last week the the political cap capital. He's left Hebron and has now made Jerusalem his capital. It's a, a unifying thing between the tribes in both the north and the south. And 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 now David is going to make it not only his political capital but he's making it a spiritual capital because he's bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. Um, in in Exodus 25:22, um, the Ark of the Covenant, right, is is this this basically like an, um, a crate, right? It's probably not a very spiritual word, but a crate that it holds the tablets. We see this in Deuteronomy ten five that it holds the Ten Commandments. Um, Hebrews chapter 9 tells us it also had um, a pot that had some manna reminding them of their time in the wilderness. It had Aaron's staff, but that ultimately it was a symbol of their special relationship with God. It was a reminder of God's presence. And it was holy, And it was sacred, and it was this reminder that, hey, we have been called to be a people who are to bless the nations because of our relationship with God. That if we walk with Him, if we know Him, He will pour out blessing upon us, and the nations will be drawn to know the one true God. And so the ark in um, Exodus 25 is where God says, I will meet you, right, at the ark. That it was um, a picture of like His footstool, like that he is in heaven and the Ark of the Covenant is his footstool of his throne. Right? It's where heaven and earth are meeting. Right? It and it's it's a place of meeting. And but because of this, it is holy, right? Because it's 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 the place where God's meeting them. It it's holy and it's it's to be cherished and to some degree feared, right? Because they're a reminder of God's holiness. Um and so this is in Twenty years ago, so remember, First Samuel, Second Samuel are covering large swaths of time. It had been left in a small city, and now it's David who's finally bringing it back as kind of a unifying thing, bringing it back to Jerusalem. So let's pick up and continue in verse six. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Yuza put out his hand to the ark of God, took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez, Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, which is Jerusalem. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So, listen, you, maybe you're used to this now in First and Second Samuel, right? That whenever it seems like things are going well, something immediate, stark, and surprising happens, right? That we've, we've seen, okay, listen, David's finally going to be made king, we're working out an agreement, and then there's betrayal and death, right? Like the things have just constantly, when it feels like we're finally on an upward trajectory, the carpet just kind of gets ripped out from underneath you, right? And so you have this celebratory scene. It feels good. It feels exciting. Like, finally, things are coming together. And then like that, someone keeps the ark from falling, and they're killed immediately. And the David immediately expresses both kind of fear and emotional response of, of anger towards the Lord. And so we have, to, we have to kind of stop and pull back for a second and say, well, what, what's going on here? This is the third time now in First and Second Samuel where God has defended the ark, right? So if we go back all the way to First Samuel chapter five, um, Israel, some twenty years prior, had tried to weaponize the ark, and instead of it being this thing where it was a reminder of God's presence among them, they took it out before them in battle, hoping that God would just wipe out their enemies. But instead, the Philistines then routed Israel took the Ark of the Covenant back and put it in their own temple to one of their gods Dagon. Right, thinking, hey, we've got a we've taken this trophy and we've we've taken their God. And the next morning when they go into their temple, Dagon has fallen over. Right? This this stone idol has fallen over. It's like, oh that's odd. They set it back up. And the next day it's it's fallen over, but its head has been cut off, its hands have been cut off. Right? That God is saying, Hey, I, I can fight my own battles. And then um, sickness breaks out amongst the people. And so the Philistines quickly are like, we, we don't want this here anymore. And so they put it on a cart with, with cows, or oxen, excuse me, and they basically are like, if it knows where to go, then we know that God's doing this. Otherwise, this was all just a coincidence. And the, the oxen just take off, and they take the Ark of the Covenant right back to the people of Israel. And those who receive it, so this is the second time God's going to defend the ark in chapter 6. They're like, hey, it's the ark of the covenant. It's come back. Let's look in it, right? And they they just drop dead. Why, right? And so now this third time, this man, it seems like he's doing the right thing, that he's keeping it from falling. He's putting his hand on it. Why would he fall over dead? And it's because ultimately, this man who was of, of a priestly line, He should have known better. Listen, if we go to Numbers chapter seven, we see this in verse verse nine. But to the sons of Kohath, he gave none, because they were charged with the service of the holy things that had to be carried on the shoulder. Right? If you go back to Numbers chapter 4, so it's saying, listen, the Ark of the Covenant was not meant to be put on a cart. It was meant to be carried. In chapter 4 of Numbers, verse 15, when Aaron and his sons, so the, the priestly line, have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, and the camp sets out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these things, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons... Of Kohath are to carry, and verse twenty he reiterates that. Right? That that if it was being carried properly, the way that it was meant to, the way that God had told them to, on poles, right, because it had rods for or it had holders for poles, you would run rods through it and they would carry it. It's like if you're carrying it the way that I've intended for you to carry it, where you won't touch it, right? If someone stumbles, then you you can grab the man without grabbing the ark. And he's saying this is the, the priestly line. You've had it for 20 years. You know what the law says, and you've chosen not to do, right? Like in your exuberance and in your excitement and in your celebration, like you're doing all that right, but you're not doing what I've asked, right? It's not obedience, right? It's misguided exuberance. And so when he reaches up to touch it, right, we're reminded of the holiness of God because he drops dead. And so we have to be reminded... That, listen, that God, and we're going to come back to this in a moment, that God is, is holy, that he is, he is other than us. He's not just a slightly better version of us. And that even though we are called to know Him well and deeply and to love Him, that we are not to presume on that familiarity. Right? That we're not to come right to where it's just like, oh, yeah, you're, you're just a little better me. That God is reminding them of His holiness. That his his otherness than us. And we'll come back to this in a moment. Let's continue in verse 12. And so it was told to King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. So after three months, he's decided, okay, I can go get it. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord, so that they're carrying it correctly, had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. To his house, right. So we see David now is now bringing the Ark of the Covenant the way that it was meant to be carried into the city of Jerusalem, right? That they're still rejoicing, but there's more of a uh, even in the midst of the singing and the dancing and the music, there's this idea of worship, right? That after they take six steps, right, and they've carried it the way God has commanded to, they stop and they do a sacrifice. And most likely what this is, is it's a reminder of, of the Sabbath, right? That as God had worked for six days and then he, they rested, right? That they're trying to connect the religious to the, to the exuberance and the excitement, right? They're, they're trying to honor the Lord here. This wasn't something that they had to do, but they're, they're coming now with a mindset of beyond exuberance, but of obedience, of showing respect and honor and sacrifice. Listen, if we go to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 12, God has talked to them about this moment. um, Beginning in verse 9. He's talking to them about the promised land, when they finally come into it. And He tells them in in, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, He says, For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God has given you to inherit, when He gives you rest from all your enemies around, remember in chapter 5, Paul, or Sorry, David has defeated the Philistines twice now. So that you live in safety. Then to the place the Lord your God will choose to make His name dwell there. There you shall bring all that I command you. Your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, and the contribution that you present. All your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. You and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants and the Levite that is within your town, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. Right? So he has told them that when they come, that it should be a celebratory thing, but that they are to be obedient in the way they do it. So the people here are honoring God. They're carrying the ark in. They're celebrating and they're rejoicing. David is dressed as a priest. Like he's out amongst the people celebrating and singing and dancing, not acting as you would expect a king to act. Right? And so Michael, who is one of Saul's daughters, one of David's wives, looks out the window, sees him, and it says she despises him. Right? And so you, you ask him, why, why is she despising him? Most likely... um one of a couple reasons. One, that she felt like at, at a minimum that, that his behavior was just beneath his dignity and role as king. But we also saw in First Samuel chapter 19 that there was some indication that, that Michael worshipped other gods, right? that she had idols at her disposal, and that she is upset because of the worship and the devotion that David is showing to God. So we're going to continue here in verse 20 and see David and Michael's interaction. David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father, and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom of whom you have spoken, by them I should be held in honor. And Michael, this daughter of Saul, had no child till the day of her death. So she makes this accusation of, Hey, you're out there flaunting yourself, right? People are seeing you, they're seeing your lack of dignity. Um, she kind of makes it a, a sexual situation where she's like, "You're flaunting yourself before all these women." And David says, "Listen, you're you're wrong. Like I'm I'm honoring and worshiping the Lord. He was dressed as a priest would be dressed, so he was not being scandalous. He was not anywhere near undressed. It was just not kingly garments." Um, and we see that the line of Saul here, right, is, is just really being just done. And as we've seen that over the first several chapters of, of 2 Samuel, as Saul's sons are being killed and murdered, that um, now the daughter of Saul has no children at this point forward, right? saying like the, the lineage of Saul has been torn from the kingdom. As David or sorry, as Samuel told him it would, that God had taken it from him because of his disobedience, and it would be the house of David whose lineage would continue, not Saul's. And so even as the house of Saul and David had come together, it's like, listen, Saul's house is done. It's David's house, his legacy, his lineage that will continue. Um, we, we've been reminded in 1 Samuel, right, that God looks at the heart, right? He looks inwardly at people, even though man and woman looks at the exterior. And here we see David saying, listen, you're looking at my outward exterior of what's going on in you're." You're humiliated or embarrassed or despising me, and yet I am pouring out my heart of devotion to the Lord, and He's pleased by it. And so even though I may look like a fool, God is honored by it. Because God's looking at my heart, not at my exterior. And so as we look at, at, at 2 Samuel 6, kind of just this, this this strange but kind of celebratory scene of the Ark of the Covenant coming in, you're going, okay, wait a second. And this is... We don't have the ark. Like, what? Why would this passage um, matter to us today? Right? Like, why would we want to know and consider this? Um, you know, as we come into today, Palm Sunday. Right? There's just a lot of parallels. Um, and I, I, I wish I could tell you that um, I was smart enough and wise enough to have made sure that Palm Sunday landed right on this passage. But it was—I wasn't. Um God is gracious in that and this week as I'm looking at it I'm like Oh my word, like this this is a picture of Palm Sunday. Right? And, and so like, let's let's look at this in light of what we are even celebrating today. Um if you go to Luke chapter nineteen, verse thirty five. T V earlier read from from John's account. This is Luke nineteen thirty five. Um, the disciples are bringing a colt to Jesus. They brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as He rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as He was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of His disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Right, And we have the scene of the crowd right, like with, with the palm branches crying out, Hosanna. Right, like There's e- e- excitement and jubilation and exuberance as he comes in for the Passover fe- festival into the city of Jerusalem. Then in both 2 Samuel 6 and in the Gospels, we see a celebration and a rejoicing right, as they come in to the city of Jerusalem. And then second, we see a visual in both of these of God entering the city. Right here we, in, in 2 Samuel 6, we have the Ark of the Covenant, which was a symbol of God's presence, of their unique relationship coming in and making it a spiritual capital. And now here in, in, on Palm Sunday, we have the Son of God, like the God-man, Emmanuel, God with us, coming in to the city of Jerusalem, right? To be worshipped, to be known, to be celebrated. God entering and then both, we have not just celebration, we don't just have this visual of God entering the city, we have some misunderstanding, right, that, that Michael is able to look at the scene and in all the jubilation and all the celebrations, her perspective is just wrong, right, like she sees it and is not celebrating and rejoicing in who God is, but she's worried about reputation, she's worried about pride, she's worried about dignity, on Palm Sunday, as Jesus came into Jerusalem, many of the crowd, right, because of the works that He had done, were convinced that the King was coming. And that the King was going to come, and they were going to overthrow their enemies, Rome, by force. And put forth a kingdom right, where Israel would once again reign and have no foreign invaders and no foreign armies, and all their enemies would be taken care of. Right? And there would be this visible kingdom on earth what they were hoping for. It's what they were longing. And that they had seen Jesus and they had seen Him do spiritual work and yet they were expecting something different. There was a misunderstanding as to what was going on. Church, would we be reminded on that note that, that it's very easy for us to look at Jesus and miss Him? That we live in an, a part of the country that would basically claim Jesus across right the lines. Like... Whether whether they ever have followed Jesus or not, people would just say, Yeah, Jesus is a good guy. Right? Saying Jesus is a good guy is missing Jesus. Because Jesus is more than a good guy. He's more than a good teacher. He's more than one that would give us an example. He is the Son of God who has come to rescue us and restore us to the Father. Who is worthy of our devotion and our worship and and, and our lack of dignity, right? It, it and our pride would be stripped away because he is everything. And we can know things about Jesus and miss Jesus. We can we can know things and not give him devotion, not give him worship, not give him trust, right? Not lean into the fact that he has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He has made us right with God the Father. He has secured our salvation by his hand, not by ours, by his obedience, not by ours. And yet there would many who would say, Yeah, 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 I know Jesus. That don't know Jesus, who would recognize the name and would could tick off and affirm some things that he did, and yet, like the demons, right? There's no devotion. There's no love. There's no cherishing. There's no trust. There's no following. There's merely like mental knowledge of who he is. So would we not run past this? That is Michael seems like the fool in 2 Samuel 6, and as the crowd is going to turn on Jesus in Jerusalem. That we would not look and, and, and with a, a shout, occasionally affirm him, and then, with our lives miss him. there's celebration, there's a visual of God entering, there's a misunderstanding of God, and then in both scenes, both in 2 Samuel six and in the Holy Week, God breaks out. Listen, as david is is he's frustrated, he's bothered by the fact that this horrific thing has happened. That Yuza that has touched the Ark of the Covenant, and it says that God broke out against him, and he died. I think sometimes we think that God only does stuff like this in the Old Testament. That's an Old Testament kind of angry God. New, like Jesus doesn't do things like that. That's what God does. Like he um, just like kills people, right? We have to be careful. But in Hebrews chapter 10, listen to what the author of Hebrews says. Verse 31. The Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Right? This is not just a, a random assortment of stories in the Old Testament This is the nature and the character of God that we have to come to grips with. That He is not us. That He is holy. And we, we throw that word around easily, but He is other. And He is glorious. And He is without fault and without sin. He is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. He is holding all things together. And so we have a problem and a need that we need a holy God. We cannot live without Him. And without Jesus, we're going to die. Right? Like, being around the holiness will kill us because we're not holy. We are sinners and we are rebels. And it's problematic because we need Him and we can't live with Him because of our sin and our rebellion towards Him. And listen, we... We can muddy the waters here and think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's who I once what Like we watered down the holiness of God pretty much constantly because we can't wrap our minds around how big it is and how significant it is. That He is perfect, and that we can't we can't cross the chasm, the divide between us. And so we have to hold intention. These things. That God's glory wants to fill the earth and spread to every nook and cranny. And His holiness wants to pull away from anything that's not holy. Right? That those things are held in tension. And so on Palm Sunday, we have Jesus entering Jerusalem. And by the end of the week, He'll be in a tomb. Dead. Crushed. The wrath of God poured out on Him. That God here too will break out. But on this time, he will not break out on the guilty, like Yuza, like us. He'll break out on the innocent one, Jesus. Because we can't handle it. Because we couldn't take it. Because we would be annihilated. So the innocent one steps in. His life in place of our life. His death in place of our death. Like that God breaks out to, to bring us back in as sons and daughters of having access to Him of the King. And so right, we need to hold those things in tension well. that Listen, this morning, if you know and love and trust Jesus, you are a son or a daughter of the King who has been given access to the throne room of grace freely, but not without cost, because it costs Jesus His life. And so we have to hold those things in tension that we get to go to Him and know Him as Father, and it was costly. And if we only view it as costly, then we don't have right like nearness with God. But if we only view the fact that we have nearness with God, then we can cheapen the sacrifice that got us there. That we have to have both of these things the fact that there was a cost that was paid that we could not pay, and God has done it on our behalf, and He calls us sons and daughters. So Jesus then begins to loom huge. Because He's done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Because He's worthy of worship. And Jesus fell into the hands, right, of a living God on our behalf. And the author of Hebrews will continue in the next chapter, in chapter 12, by saying this, verses 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom Right, Not a physical kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom, a heavenly kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with what? With reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. It's who He is, and yet He's brought us in. And it cannot be shaken. And so we want to offer worship that sees Him for who He is and responds to Him in that way. Both as gracious and as severe. And so when He reveals to you your sin, in that there is a weight and a severeness of like, I cannot stand. And in the same time, right, there's grace that says, my grace has far outrun your sin. And you're welcome to know me, trust me, and to call me Father. Right? Like we're invited in, so His mercy is a severe mercy. And His grace is a severe grace and kindness to us that we would know Him, but not without cost. We just don't pay the cost. And so we have a celebration. We have a visual of God entering. We have a misunderstanding. We have God breaking out. And then the final thing is this this ends with the tent, um, the Ark of the Covenant coming into the tent. And then David just begins to pass out food. It says to every man and woman, like they're just feeding the people, right, with provision. This idea, again, of, of celebration, of eating. And in every culture, right, a meal is a sign of reconciliation. It's a sign of peace. It's a sign of welcome. And to eat a meal with someone means we're together, right? Like we belong here together. And before the cross, Jesus has a meal with the disciples, right? Telling them, listen, my body is going to be broken for you. My blood is going to be spilt for you. He institutes the Lord's Supper that we took last week and we'll take again next week. But it goes even further than that. Listen to... Revelation, chapter 19. We go to the end of Scripture. Beginning um, in verse 6. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. Again, this, just this... Um, exuberant celebration for the marriage of the lamb, meaning Jesus has come and his bride has made herself ready, the church, the people of God. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And now verse nine. And the angel said to me, write this blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Church, for those who trust and treasure, who follow Jesus, who have been rescued by his hand, you're invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, where you will sit down with access to God for all time, eating a meal in peace, in security, in safety, right? Rejoicing for all time with the one who's rescued you, right? That, that what happened to Uzzah, right, doesn't happen to those who follow Jesus. Because Jesus has taken it for us. And so as David celebrates with food and sends it out, that we are reminded that we too will have a feast with this holy God. And so I want to read one final passage to us. This is Isaiah 55. Would you listen to these words as we consider 2 Samuel 6? Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. He says, listen. You don't bring anything to the table and yet you can come and feast with me. By trusting and knowing Jesus. Right? By giving Him your allegiance. So this morning, here's where we're going to end. For some, maybe even in this moment, the Lord is showing you your sin and is also calling you by name. Saying, I'm yours. Like, I want you to trust me and to know me. Would you follow me? I've I've done it all for you, and you're invited in. For others, maybe this morning you know Jesus, but you're just reminded of the need to rejoice. That He is both consuming fire and our good Father. Simultaneously, He's both. And you just want to rejoice in and celebrate that. Maybe this morning for you, what you need is to be reminded to enjoy Him. To see Him rightly. that He has given the provision that we need. And that's not just the marriage feast of the Lamb. It's not just food. But He's given us access to God. He's paid the price, the penalty for our sin. And brought us in His family. Like provision has been made. It's all been done. We bring nothing to the table. And yet we gain everything as co-heirs with Christ. You are no longer children of wrath. But you are called sons and daughters for those who know, and love, and trust Jesus. This week, would we consider and ponder this, right? As we see the Palm Sunday happening, as Jesus comes in triumphal and will end crucified and then also resurrected, right? Like we see the, this, this huge arc of emotion that we would, we would not always run so quick to the fact that Jesus is alive that we would also see the cost that we would hold those things in tension of our need that led that to have to occur. Um, If you want a psalm to to consider in light of of 2 Samuel 6, Psalm 132 is one that you can read through and and meditate on this week um, as David is bringing the ark into Jerusalem. Um, It's in light of that. This morning, um, the band's going to come back up. I'm going to pray for us. Would you sing to your king who is alive, who's invited you in, who we no longer have to fear, like Uzzah, because of Jesus. And if you don't know him, that you would even now say, Jesus, I'm yours. Like, I'm yours. I want to trust you and follow you. There's no magic words there. It's heart allegiance. It's following and trusting. There'll be some men and women in the back of the room. If you need someone to talk to or pray with about anything, they're glad to do that. And let's um, sing to our King. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that we can look at a story 3,000 years old, that it would point us to a story 2,000 years old, and minister to our hearts today. God, help us to hold those these things in tension, that, that you are both fearsome and your Father. Lord, for those of us who lean too much to the other, one side or the other, God, would you bring us into that tension um, that You are glorious and good and You're also fierce and that we need Jesus. God, that without Him we stand alone and we will be um, without hope. And yet, with Jesus, the kingdom will never be shaken because we are secure in Your hands. So Father, would we give You worship that is indicative of the fact that you have rescued us. In Jesus' name.